Praise the Lord. Well, you may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 105. We want to continue along the lines that we've been teaching for the last couple of weeks on biblical prosperity. Now, Paul wrote to the church and told us that the things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament, as recorded in the Old Testament, happened as types or in samples. In other words, they're examples for us to show us who God is and how he works and, and what his will is. Since God is no respecter of persons, whatever we see that God did for Israel in the Old Testament, he would certainly have to be willing to do for us. Now we know, and again Paul tells us this, we know that the Old Testament deliverance from Egypt was a type of salvation. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand, you remember the ten plagues that were identified? That after those uh, ten plagues, after the last one, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh let the children of Israel go. But then he changed his mind and he brought an attack against them, in, intending to destroy them and kill the whole group. As we've said many times before, the estimates of the size of the children of Israel as they came out of the bondage of Egypt is estimated anywhere between 2 and 7 million people. So pick whatever number you want. It doesn't matter to me. We're talking about a large group of folks. Their backs were to the Red Sea. They had mountains on either side. There was no place for them to escape. And God brought them out. He brought them through the Red Sea on dry land. He brought them into his deliverance. And as, Moses, as uh, Paul tells us concerning the story of Moses and the children of Israel, he tells us that that was a type of salvation. Egypt represents the world. The slavery of Israel represents the bondage of man under the law of sin and death because of Adam's sin. And Psalm 105 tells us how they came out. Notice here in Psalm 105, again, as a part of or representing the salvation that belongs to us, in Psalm 105, verse 37, it says, He brought them forth, talking about Israel, He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Now, folks, if the Old Testament is an example for us, and that which the Bible clearly says is the example of salvation passing through the Red Sea on dry ground, delivering, been, uh, being delivered from, Israel, uh, from Egypt's bondage. If that's a type or an example of salvation, then the way they came out has to be a type for us too. Meaning, this verse of Scripture in Psalm 105, verse 37, he brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one people among them. That has to mean, therefore, that healing and abundance are a part of salvation. It's a part of the work of Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 5, tells us that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Well, then that tells us as well that Jesus shed his blood for those things, sins and iniquities, transgressions and iniquities. Both of those are types of sin. The difference between the two, as far as our salvation is concerned, is that Jesus paid the price for personal sin, the original sin, but then he also paid the price for your sins and mine. But he also shed his blood for healing. With his stripes we were healed. And he also shed his blood and took upon the punishment of our peace. That Hebrew word peace is shalom. It means well-being in every area. And it's translated in several places in the Old Testament as prosperity. So Jesus shed his blood for our material well-being too. And that's why Psalm 105, verse 37, is an example or, or shows us is a description of what belongs to us as a part of the salvation work of Jesus. He brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one people among them. Healing and prosperity is a part of salvation. Now, I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. As we've said again, and I know I go over this a lot, but it's, it's for a reason. 
we need to be so familiar with the things that the Bible tells us about God's character and nature that it becomes a foundation for us. If you've got the right foundation about who God is and what God will do, there's not a lot of room for the devil to get in. Most of the work of the devil is through deception, tricking us or trying to keep our eyes blinded to the reality of who God is and how he works. One area of that that we're all familiar with is healing. you got the church world that argues back and forth over whether God intended for healing to be a part of the redemptive work of Jesus. Well, I don't think the Bible could be any clearer to state and identify that it is part of the work of Jesus. But not everybody knows that. Not everybody will accept that. The same thing's true where prosperity is concerned. The Bible says Jesus shed his blood for our prosperity. In the letters to the church, Paul wrote to the Corinthians that Jesus was made poor for our sakes that we through his poverty might be made rich. When was he made poor? At the same time he was made sin. At at the same time he was made sickness. And he shed his blood for it. And so one of the reasons that I keep going over the same scriptures, and I'm going to read a lot this morning, some of the same ones that you heard last Sunday, is because it's important for us to develop our faith in the area of finances, just as it's important for us to develop our faith in the area of healing, just as it's important as we should develop our faith in anything and everything that God has provided for us or wants us to have. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, here's Moses' farewell address to the children of Israel. Most of the book of Deuteronomy is his farewell address. And he's telling them what to expect in the promised land. He's telling them how to operate in the promised land to take possession of all that belonged to them because of God's decree and God's command. So verse 1, all the commandments which I command thee this day shalt thou, shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. You may remember that's what Jesus quoted to the devil when he was tempted after the 40 days in the wilderness. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord thy God chastens thee. Therefore shalt thou keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. Notice that the land, the promised land God had for them was a good place. There's no barely getting by here. There's no nose to the grindstone attitude that God would have as some people would tell us. But God's a God of abundance. He's a God of goodness. Verse 8, he said it was a land of wheat and barley and fines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Here's the warning. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, God seems to like multiplying. Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint. 
who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. Folks, the trials and the tests and the afflictions that we encounter are not brought forth by God, but when we use God's word to overcome them, then we come to the place where God intended for us all the time to do us good at our latter end. The warning continues, Beware that thou shalt say in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Now, folks, if, if the blessings of God, the blessings of the promised land, and the promised land, if Egypt is the type of the world and the parting of the Red Sea was a type of salvation, a lot of people think that the promised land must be a type of heaven. But that can't be the case because there aren't any giants in heaven. There aren't any enemies to fight in heaven. Well, if, it's not a type, if the promised land is not a type or an example of heaven, what is it a type or an example of? the day that we live in, the church age, where we are required to possess and take hold of all the things that God has provided for us. These things of God don't just fall on us like ripe cherries off a tree. We have to go in and possess them. Now, if we have to go in and possess it, then the question has to be answered, how do we possess it? And the answer is very simple. The Bible tells us over and over again that the only way you can receive anything from God is by faith. So the force of faith, the power of faith, has to therefore be the power to get wealth. Are you out there? But notice again, it's contingent on obedience to the Word. It's about the Word of God. It's not about whether God likes you or not. It's not about whether or not you're God's favorite. It comes down to the Word. Let's look at another verse, passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Verse 7, but your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land, whether you go to possess it. Moses is still talking about the same thing. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that floweth with milk and honey. For the land whether thou go to possess it, is not as the land of Egypt from which you came out, where you sowed your seed and watered it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land where you go to possess it is the land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto my commandments, Notice it's still contingent on obedience. Which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thine corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in the fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves. Here's the same warning again that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you. And he shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit. And lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth thee. Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house, and upon the gates, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children, in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them. Notice this last phrase in verse 21. As the days of heaven upon the earth. Now, folks, if God is talking about that, then his will has to be for us to live days here on the earth that are just like the days that we'll have in heaven. Now, the surroundings will sure be different. 
the surroundings and things that we'll experience in heaven are going to be a lot different than any day that we could have here on the earth. But again, because of the blessing of God through obedience to his word, through this power of faith or this force of faith that takes hold and possesses what Jesus has purchased for us, we are in, uh, intended by God to live days of heaven on the earth, to live days here on the earth that are just like what we would have in heaven. Now, folks, nobody questions the provision in heaven. Nobody questions whether there's healing in heaven. Nobody has any doubts about that whatsoever. And God says not only can we, but he wants us to have days of heaven here on the earth. And notice those days of heaven on the earth include provision. It includes material well-being, material wealth, if you will. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verse 1, and it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently into the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all of his commandments which I command thee this day that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. Same contingency. Obedience to the word will bring it about. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself as he is sworn unto thee. If thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods in the fruit of thy body and in the fruit of thy cattle and in the fruit of thy ground in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season and to bless all the work of thine hand and thou shalt lend unto many nations and thou shalt not borrow. Now, folks notice he's not saying it's wrong to borrow. He's saying you won't have to. See if it was wrong to borrow it would be wrong to lend. But he says that you'll be able to lend and not borrow. Verse 13, And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, if, thou, if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left, or go after other gods to serve them. Over and over again, and we could pick many other examples as well. But over and over again, the Bible talks about that Israel was to be a partaker of the blessing of God, the blessings of abundance, in great, great measure through obedience to God's word. And the only warning that God gives is don't forget me when you prosper. That's it. Don't let the devil twist your heart or your thinking. To think that you're the one that did it on your own. That's the only criteria, the only, uh, well, the only warning that God gives us when it comes to material well-being and prosperity. He says, don't forget me when you prosper. So we have to conclude, and the Bible is crystal clear on this point, that prosperity, provision, material well-being, even material wealth is available through obedience to God's word. Now, God never changes. God's word never changes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never change. Never fail, never be any different than it is right now. So if the word of God, through in obedience to the word of God in the Old Testament, brought material well-being and multiplication of all of your goods and even wealth, then the word of God would have to produce the same results today. Now, the criteria in the Old Testament was obedience to the word. 
What's the, the criteria in the New Testament? To believe. To believe in what God has done. Now, since the Bible makes the, the, uh, the point very clear that obedience is of the word is the thing that brings abundance, then we have to recognize that God knew that they didn't have to obey. That's why the warnings were there. That's why the instruction was there. To obey the word of God so that you can prosper, so that you'll be provided for, so that the land will yield its fruit in great abundance. But you know as well as I do that Israel didn't always obey. Now turn with me over to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 starts off with God bringing an accusation against Israel because they stopped obeying his word. And as a result, they find themselves in a less than ideal situation. They're not provided for. The land isn't yielding its fruit. They're not plenteous in goods. It's not going for them the way that God intended for it to go. It's not going the way that God wants it to go for them. And so he gives them a fix. He gives them a fix. The verses we're about to read specifically identify, here's how you fix your finances. Verse 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Now, folks, I quote that verse of Scripture a lot, but I want you to see the context. The context of God saying, I don't ever change, has to do with the material well-being and the prosperity and the wealth of his people. Now, if the Old Testament is an example to us, then what he said about his blessing and his intent and his will and his plan and his purpose for Israel has to be his intent, his will, his plan, and his purpose for us. Because he never changes. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. The preceding verses tell us that through their disobedience, they should have been consumed and wiped off the face of the earth. But God said, I don't change. I made a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant with Abraham still is in effect at the time that he's speaking these words. And folks, the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect today. Jesus didn't come to do away with the Abrahamic covenant. He came to add to it. So we have, therefore, we have, those of us in Christ, our heirs of the blessing of Abraham. That means we've got all the blessings of the Old Testament, all the blessings that God gave unto Israel, plus the spiritual part that they didn't have, the opportunity to become children of God, new creatures in Christ Jesus. And that's the reason that Paul said in writing to the Romans that we have a better covenant established upon better promises. He didn't say a different covenant. He said a better covenant. See, a lot of the church is looking at the Abrahamic covenant like that's been done away with. That'll never be done away with. God's covenants are eternal. So he didn't do away with the Abrahamic covenant. He just added to it in great, great measure. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. They failed to keep the criteria of obedience. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? I want you to notice, folks, that God has done everything he's ever going to do about our well-being. He said, if you want to come back to the blessings of God... It's your move, not his. But you said, wherein shall we, we return? Here's God's answer. He said, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? And God answers, in tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Here's the fix. Verse 10, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive. 
Now, folks, a blessing that there's not room enough to receive has to be something more than just money. It has to be more than just finances. How could we ever get to the place where we couldn't have more money? Any of you ever gotten a call from your bank saying, I'm sorry, we can't take any more money in your account? It's impossible. Numbers are infinite. So you can always add numbers. You can always add money, which is basic. Money really comes down to math. So the blessing that there's not room enough to receive has to be more than just money. There are other blessings attached to tithing. God said he'd open the windows of heaven to us and pour us out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. I think one reason that the Bible says it in these terms, one reason that the Bible doesn't specifically identify every part or all of the blessings of God, all of the window of heaven blessings of God related to the tithe, is because God wants us to be bigger than just what we think he is. He wants to be bigger to us than just what we think he will be. There have been times in my Christian walk where different things have happened and the Lord has witnessed to my heart that this is one of the blessings of the tithe. But it wasn't a financial blessing. It was something outside of finances. But I recognized that it was there because I put myself in a position to receive from God by acting on his word. And those times where the, when those things have occurred, it has brought such a blessing and has made me love God so much at the point where I saw what he did and why he did it that it genuinely added to my Christian life. Maybe you've had similar experiences. He goes on in verse 11. He said, And I will rebuke the devourer from your, for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast your fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, folks, in verse 11, God said he'll do something about the devourer, and I'm quite sure that you would agree with me that the devourer has to be a type of Satan. So if God is saying he'll do something about the devil for you or on your behalf, you need to recognize that this is the only place in the whole of the Bible where God ever said he would do something about the devil for you. Every other place, the Bible tells you to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It tells you to submit yourself to God. It tells you to stand against the, the working of the devil in faith. Every other place in the Bible where instruction is given to us about the devil, in every other place without exception, it's what we should do and how we should use our authority in the name of Jesus to stand against the devil. But here God said he'd do something about him for you. Now think about that. Your money, your finances, your possessions is the only area where God said he'd deal with the devil for you. I think that's significant. Let's keep reading in verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? You have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of, of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Do you see what God's complaining about from them or concerning them? He's saying, you've used your words against me. Now, folks, remember this idea of we know that faith is believing with the heart and speaking with the mouth. But faith is not just a New Testament thing that just popped up out of nowhere. The Old Testament said, we talked about the children of Israel, the 12 spies going into the land. God said after the 10 spies convinced everybody that they couldn't take the land that God said they could, God said to Moses, tell them, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Well, here's Israel speaking in God's ears in Malachi chapter 3. 
and they're saying things against God. Well, just like the ten spies came back and gave an evil report, they're speaking an evil report too. I wonder if that has anything to do with their lack of possessions or provision. I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that they are under a curse. See, folks, it's not just a matter of the tithe, which means a tenth. It's not just a matter of you putting your money in the plate. It's not just a matter of you bringing your money to the church. It's what you believe about it that counts. It's what you say about your tithe that counts. It has to be and is intended to be a faith proposition. Now, what happens as a result of this? Verse 16, it said, Then they that feared the Lord spake often to one another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serves him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. In other words, it says there were a number. Doesn't tell us how many. It certainly doesn't indicate that the whole nation of Israel turned around. But there were those that chose to fear God and to obey what he told them to do. And the end result, rather than telling us the blessing or the prosperity of the silver and gold that he multiplied to them, it tells us his attitude toward them. These are the ones that will make up my jewels in that day. In other words, it's telling us that those that paid their tithes, those that obeyed his instruction and kept his commandments, they had a special place in God's heart. Now, as I said, the tithe means the tenth. It means that 10% of whatever we have, whatever we make, whatever comes into our hands, is what God expects to be brought to the church. Did you notice in verse 10 it says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse? It didn't say send them. The tithes are supposed to belong to somewhere that you go to be fed. Did you notice he said bring all the tithes? He didn't say bring part of them to the church and then send the rest around the world. He said bring it all to the church. Bring all the tithes. So the tithe belongs somewhere that you should go or are intended by God to go to be a part of. And the tithe is intended to be kept together in one piece. Now, the Bible gives us some other things and some other instruction concerning the tithe. In Leviticus chapter 27, it says, verse 30, it says, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Did you know your tithe was holy? This is God saying that you're bringing your ten, first 10% of whatever we increase, whatever comes into our hands, whether it be your paycheck or some windfall profit or whatever it is, it says that first 10% belongs to God because it's holy. It gives us more in information in verse 31. And if a man will at all redeem all of his tithes. In other words, he says if you bring 8% but not 10 then in order to redeem that 2% that you didn't bring, you shall add thereto the fifth part or 20% to it. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but 20% seems pretty high interest rate to me. The Bible must, it seems to be telling us that God doesn't want to split it up. The Bible warns us against, warned Israel against eating of their tithe. In other words, they face the same situations that we do sometimes where it looks like we can't afford to do it. I've had people say, Pastor Mike, I just can't bring 10% of my income. I just can't make it. I can't afford it. And I always think I never tell anybody this. Because whether you do or don't obey the words, up to you. 
My job is to tell you what it says. Whether you obey it or not is up to you. But I always think whenever somebody says they can't afford it, I always think I can't afford not to. Now, the reason that we think differently about that, one person thinks he can't afford it, and I think I can't afford not to, is because we have different knowledge. We're at different levels of information and understanding of what the tithe is. And folks, everybody, when they first begin to tithe, do it out of a sense of obedience. And it may be tough to put the money in, and you may be putting the money in wondering, how in the world am I going to make it? But remember, it's the only thing God said put him to the test. Throughout the whole Bible, it's the only place where he said, prove me in some way. And he said it concerning your money. Let me read you another verse of Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 14. Beginning in verse 22, it says, Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed, that the field bringeth forth year by year. And thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God in the place where he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of thine corn and thy wine and of thine oil, and the firstlings of thy herds and of thy flocks. The last part of the verse 23 is what I want you to see. That thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. What is tithing about? Is it about God forcing you to do something that brings you to the edge of destruction? No, it's about learning to fear him. It's about learning to respect him and what his word says and the promises he's made no matter what it looks like otherwise. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 8 that fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The book of Proverbs also says there is no wisdom against God. There is no excuse. There is no reasoning. There is no theory. that can ever negate the truth of God's word. People go into gymnastic gyrations spiritually trying to make excuses for why it's not for us. A lot of people will say tithing is of the Old Testament. Well, it's really not. Or I should say it this way. People will say tithing was a part of the law. It's not a part of the law. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. Tithing came around before the law was ever given. Therefore, it can't be a part of the, of, of the law of Moses. Genesis chapter 14, without taking time to read everything, let me just give you the context of these scriptures. When Abraham left his home and obeyed God to go to the land of Canaan, his nephew Lot went with him. And just as God had promised, the blessing of God made Abraham rich. Well, Lot had become rich too because he was with Abraham. And it came to the place where their, their uh, herds, their flocks were so numerous that the servants in Lot's house, the shepherds that were tending to the sheep in Lot's house, began to argue with and fight with the, the uh, servants that were tending the sheep in Abraham's house. And so Abraham said, look, there's no reason for us to fall out. Let's just separate our flocks. You pick wherever you want to go, and I'll go the other direction. Now, Lot should have stopped right there and said, no, 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 no. No way am I separating from you. The only reason I, my flocks are greater is because I have been with you, and the blessing of God is on you. The blessing of God certainly was not on Lot. So he should have said, I'll do whatever I need to do to stick together with you. If I need to get better uh, shepherds so that they don't fight with you we'll do that whatever it takes I'm not leaving you but Lot agreed so he said I'll go that way toward the cities those cities look beautiful there in the plains well those cities were the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah not a real wise choice on his part but maybe he didn't know what he's getting himself into who knows Abraham went the other direction to the land that didn't look as good. And folks, a man of faith will always take what's left. Time comes when Lot is a resident of the city of Sodom. And the enemies of Sodom take him 
and his people and all the, the citizens of the, the city and all their possessions as a spoil. Abraham hears about it and gathers together about 300 servants from his own house. So if he's got 300 servants that are of fighting age and condition, you can well understand that he's got a great crowd of people and he's grown into a great nation himself. So he takes those 300 or so servants and he makes a guerrilla attack against the people that have sacked Sodom and taken all the stuff. And because God was with him, because of the blessing of God, he comes away and saves everybody, spares everybody that was there in the city of Sodom and all the possessions that the enemies of Sodom had taken. And so we pick up the story in verse 17. This is after Abraham has taken everything back. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of somebody, Chedorlaomer. I'm not sure how to say it, but I'm sure that's not it. <laughs> and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, or whatever, which is the king's dale. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, which has delivered thine enemies unto thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from thee a thread, even to a shoelace, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Save only. The only thing I've taken is that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which were with me and then identifies the individuals and says, let them take their portion. Now, folks, here's the first time that tithing ever occurs in the Scripture. And it's Abraham. He hadn't even had his name changed yet to Abraham. He's still Abram. Now, who told Abram to do this? It's way before the law of Moses, probably 400 years or so before the law of Moses comes around. Tithing is certainly a part of the law of Moses in that it has been incorporated into the law of Moses. But paying tithes to Melchizedek happened before the law was ever given. Now, do we have any record in any way whatsoever that God told Abram to do this? Without getting into who Melchizedek is, other scriptures, passage of scripture tells us that he was without descent, without father or mother. We don't know if that means he didn't have one or they just, uh, the Bible doesn't include who, it, who he was of, who his parents would have been. If he didn't have, if he was not of natural descent, then he has to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. That's possible. It's not necessary or it's not necessarily identified as specific or the only way it could be. But this person called Melchizedek has to be important. He has to be greater than Abram. Now, folks, how could somebody be greater than the person that God made a covenant with? There's a lot we don't know about this. But one thing we do know, we know that Abraham's attitude was such that he was relying, even at this early place in his life, in his walk with God. He was so reliant on the things of God and so aware of God's blessing that was upon him that he would not even give anybody the opportunity to have the wrong impression of how he obtained his wealth. Now, he's turning down huge amounts of money. He's turning down a, an in, incredible amount 
of possessions and wealth that he could rightly have taken to himself. I mean, there wouldn't be anything there if he hadn't gone and defeated the enemies. But his attitude toward God was greater and of, of greater value than the wealth that he turned down. In other words, the fear of the Lord was great with him. Why did he do it? We don't have any record that anybody else had ever tithed before. Where did he get the idea? It wasn't something that God instructed him to do. It was something that he did because of his love for God. However this thing went down, when Abram saw who Melchizedek was, when he identified who he was, again, that may have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It may have been such that he had seen God in visions before. And as a result, maybe he knew who this was. Some way or another, he had to come to an understanding of who he was, talking about Melchizedek, to be willing to give such a tremendous gift as his tithes had to have been. What I want you to see from this, folks, is that whatever else was going on and however these things took place outside of just the specific information that we have recorded in Genesis 14, which isn't a lot, whatever happened and however it happened, it shows that Abram gave to the representative of God to honor him, to honor God. And that's, in my opinion, you judge for yourself, but that's why I believe that it was incorporated into the law of Moses. Because it was a memorial of Abraham's willingness to honor God with his substance. Now, the Bible tells us the same thing in Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. In other words, it's saying just like Moses, uh, just like Abraham honored God with his tithe given to Melchizedek. In the same way when we honor God, in the same way when we bring out the first fruits of our increase, we're honoring God too. Now there's a lot of ideas and a lot of teachings and a lot of things that are out there about how that tithing is not a part of the New Testament anymore. It's not a requirement. There's either even a, a teaching out there. I haven't heard anything about it in the last couple of years, but there was in recent times a teaching that was out there about Jesus being the tithe. And because of what Jesus did, he nullified man's or the children of God's need to pay tithes. Well, if that was the case, Paul didn't know. Paul wasn't aware of that. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Now, I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews, and there's some pretty strong evidence to indicate that that is the case. It's not ironclad evidence. We don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt. But we do know certain things. We know from the letter that he wrote to the Galatians, you may remember that Paul's address or Paul's letter to the Galatians was because there were Jews that had come from, Judea, from uh, Jerusalem that had, after Paul had established the church, that had come in after the fact and modified Paul's teaching to the people that had been born again in his ministry when he was there. And he gets on them pretty big. He gets real specific with them and asks them, how could they be so stupid as to take the, the things that Jesus has already accomplished and imagine that they could be improved upon by keeping the law? And that's what these Jews had done. They had come in and said, well, this thing with Jesus is good, all right, but we still have to keep the law of Moses. Well, that was completely contrary to what Paul had taught. Paul taught people that the law of Moses was fulfilled by the work of Jesus. 
So the only thing that's necessary to come to God now in their day and the same in our day is to believe that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead and that he accomplished all the things for us that the Old Testament prophecy said that he would. It goes on in the latter part of the, the book of Galatians and Paul said, you can see what a large letter I've written. Well, the letter to the Galatians is just six chapters. It's certainly not even the largest one or the longest one that he wrote to any of the other churches. In fact, it's as big or uh, there's only one or two other letters that are smaller in, or lesser, than, lesser in size than the ones that he wrote to the Galatians. But there's some historical evidence that indicates that not only did Paul try to create or correct the situation with the Gentiles in the church, but he also wrote down his revelation that he received from the Lord himself in what we know of as the book of Hebrews. And, the, uh, and that those two letters, the letters to the Hebrews and the letters to the Galatians, were attached in some way. Now, if that is the case, it would explain why Paul didn't identify himself as the author of the book of Hebrews. If it was a, uh, an attachment to the letter that he wrote to the Galatian church. And if that were the case, then his statement about what a large or a long letter he wrote would certainly apply if you put the book of Galatians and the book of Hebrews together. It's by far the longest thing that he ever wrote. So that's a possibility. One thing that we know for sure is the letter to the, to the Hebrews is Paul's revelation. So if Paul didn't write it, who did? Some people say that Timothy wrote it. Well, that's possible. But if he did, he learned to say things exactly like Paul said them. Because there are phrases that are used in the book of Hebrews that are exclusive to Paul's style of writing. So I believe, you decide for yourself, but I believe that Paul is the one that wrote these things. Peter sure couldn't have written them because Peter complained about the revelation of Paul being hard to understand in some parts. So he certainly could have been, couldn't have been the one. So it satisfies me, I don't know if it does you, but it satisfies me that Paul is the one that wrote the book of Hebrews. Now in Hebrews chapter 7, Paul makes a statement or the Holy Ghost, let's just say it this way, whether Paul was the author or not, the Holy Ghost is the one that inspired it to be written. So the Holy Ghost is saying to us in verse 8, it says, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Now the preceding verses talk about Abraham, talking about the tithes of Abraham that we've read in uh, Genesis chapter 14. And there's a couple of things that verse 8 identifies. First of all, it identifies that the book of Hebrews had to have been written before 70 A.D. Because 70 A.D. was the time when Israel was destroyed by the Romans. The temple was torn down. As Jesus said, not one stone left upon another and so forth. So since men are still receiving tithes, as is referenced in verse 8, that means the temple is still standing in Jerusalem. So this has to be written before A.D. 70. We know that date very certain, very surely as the one where the temple was destroyed. So, it's telling us that temple worship and the tithes being brought to the temple is taking place just like it had been in Jesus' day and just like it had been in the early days of the church. Now, if Paul or whoever the Holy Spirit inspired to write these things was aware that Jesus, through fulfilling the law, had done away with the tithe, why didn't he say something about it here? He's clearly talking about the subject of tithing. Why didn't he say at that point, now I know some are still paying tithes, but that's not necessary. But instead, he talks about the tithe as being connected with Jesus himself. It's a witness that Jesus is alive. Did you know that you paying your tithes 
bears witness, not just lip service, but bears witness to the fact that you believe Jesus is alive. Yet you've got people in the church world that believe Jesus is alive and that he was raised from the dead and are trying through some excuse or some reason or whatever explanation they give, trying to get out of paying the tithes, claiming it's a part of the Old Testament. Again, the Holy Spirit inspired the writer. I believe it was Paul to say that couldn't have been the case. It could not have been the case. Here men that die receive tithes, but there at the right hand of the Father, it's a witness that Jesus is alive. Finally, folks, turn with me to Psalm 35. Psalm 35, verse 27. We've looked at this before, but I want you to see it again now. Psalm 35, verse 27. It says, Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. I want you to notice the connection between prosperity and what you say. Now, I'm glad God delights in the prosperity of his people. We can certainly see that, the example of that in the Old Testament with the scriptures that we read from Deuteronomy. God doesn't say to the people, well, prove yourself and walk with me and walk in obedience to my word for 50 years and then we'll see about blessing you. He tells them in an absolute manner, the word of God acted on will bring blessing and prosperity and multiplication and wealth into your hands. It will do that because that's what it was designed to do. All you have to do is put it in practice, put it in motion, and it'll produce every time. But just as in Malachi chapter 3, where the people were speaking against God, the people were speaking words to the effect that what good does it do to obey the word? The wicked still come out on top. And folks, you need to realize this world is not fair. Never does the Bible say that God will even things up and make everything fair. If the world were fair, then school teachers would make more money than actors. Now I'm talking about real school teachers that care about the welfare of the kids, not those that are there to indoctrinate them into liberal policies and social experiments. But if the world were fair, then teachers would make more than actors do. That's never going to be the case. The world's not fair. Everybody's not going to wind up with the same outcome. And the Bible always uses terms when it talks about wealth and provision. It always uses relative terms. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where it says Jesus was made poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. Well, what does rich mean? Rich may mean something different to you than it means to me. It doesn't say Jesus was made poor so that we through his poverty might be made millionaires. Because that would identify exactly what that was, what level that was. And people are at different places where their faith is concerned. I remember George Muller, the story of George Muller that started the uh, Bristol orphanages. And during his lifetime, he was responsible for the care of over 20,000 orphans throughout the years. Well, he said, and this was at a day when there wasn't much communication. Uh, there weren't printing presses. There weren't mailings and stuff like that for somebody to share what needs they had for the orphanages or anything like that. But he said, toward the end of his life, he said, when I first started out doing what God told me to do, 
it was all I could do to believe God for just a small amount of money. But he said, but after walking with God for 50 years and feeding my faith daily on the word of God, he said, I could wind up, I wound up being able to believe for millions of pounds, English pounds, easier than I could just a small amount 50 years before. So people are at different levels of faith. People are at different levels of, of growth in every area in their lives. Well, it stands to reason that the more we develop our faith, or at least a part of the growth of our faith, would make wealth mean one thing to us where it would mean something else to somebody that hadn't yet developed to that degree. But since the, all the blessings of God, taking possession of all the blessings of God, comes down to believing in our heart and saying with our mouth, then I think we need to recognize that the Old Testament, even this example in Psalm 35, verse 27, is putting the emphasis on what we say rather than a dollar amount. Let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. The Bible is simply telling us, folks, don't ever talk anything but blessing. Don't ever talk anything but abundance. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like, no matter what the bank says, we will always have plenty. That's the way you can live. Again, one of the phrases used in the Old Testament is the days of heaven on earth. I don't think God ever has a cash flow problem. Do you? Now, there are things that we're going to be attacked with, and the devil's going to attack us in finances just like he attacks our bodies, just like he tempts us to sin. He's going to tempt us to speak against God and to speak against the blessings of God because of the circumstances we may find ourselves in. But no circumstance ever changes God's word. No circumstance can ever overcome the truth of what God said. Heaven and earth will pass away. Finances may be up or finances may be down, but the word of God will never change. And remember in Malachi, God said, I am the Lord, I change not. And he said it relative to acting in obedience to his word concerning finances. Well, if God doesn't change, that means the blessing he gave Abraham, he'll give you too. We see Abraham's faith grow through the years. We see the, the level that he starts off with when he first begins to obey God is a whole different level than when he offers Isaac, his son, on the altar as a sacrifice, prepared to take his own life because he trusts God. The Bible says that he recognized that God would have to raise him from the dead if he did, if he did die. And as far as he was concerned, that was already done. Well, that's a much higher level of trust and faith in God than he started off with. Rich means something different to me than it used to. I had a friend in, in high school. I thought they were rich. And the reason I thought they were rich is because they had a house that had four bedrooms. Shoe doggies, that house must have been 2,500 square feet. I mean big. And another thing is they had a cement pond in the backyard. They had an in-ground swimming pool. Well, only rich people could have that. Well, I've got a bigger house than that now, and I've got a cement pond of my own. Rich has changed for us over the years, hasn't it? Let them shout for joy that favor my righteous cause. There's something else, and the last thing I'll say about this for this morning is that the Lord spoke to me many years ago. I don't even know how long ago it would be. I don't even know how I would even identify when it was. 
But many years ago, I was reading, just minding my own business, not really studying the area of prosperity or anything specific, just reading the Word. And the Lord spoke something to me that I'll never get away from. He said this. He said, prosperity without a purpose is greed. That's true, isn't it? Prosperity without a purpose is greed. So here in Psalm 35, verse 27, let them shout for joy that favor my righteous cause. What is his righteous cause? Well, he said in scriptures that we just read that he brings abundance into our hands, provision and possessions into our life, that he may establish his covenant. That he may establish his covenant. Even as it is this day. In other words, just as real as the promise that he made to Abram, that promise is just as good for you and me. So let them shout for joy that favor my righteous cause. Let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Let's say that. Say it with me. Let the Lord be magnified. That has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Now let's say it this way. Let the Lord be magnified. Who has pleasure in my prosperity. Now start saying that, so, that to yourself several times a day. The Lord delights in my prosperity. The Lord delights in my prosperity. The Lord delights when I prosper. When that gets down on the inside of you, that's when it makes a difference. That's when you'll see things in a different way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we bless you, and we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy to us. Quicken us according to your word, Lord. Quicken us according to the truth that you delight in our prosperity. Quicken us to the windows of heaven blessing as we bring our tithes into the storehouse and witness that Jesus is alive. Quicken us, Lord, according to your righteousness. Quicken us according to your way. Open our eyes to the truth that we may see once and for all your plan and your purpose for our lives, your plan and your purpose for our well-being, your plan and your purpose for our provision. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody that agrees, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Come on back to Healing School tonight if you can.